Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to this morning's session, which is part of the HCI webinar series. My name is Una Gilvari, and I'm the Chief Research Officer in Healthcare Informant, or HCI. And this morning, as I said, this is part of a series of webinars that, that HCI run. But this morning, our specific focus is on good governance for assuring quality of care in missionaries and in religious orders. So what we're going to be looking at is looking at what good governance actually is, what it means, and how services um, can objectively review their approach to governance and the tools available to drive continuous improvement to ensure that you're fulfilling um, a duty of care to your older members. So we're going to be about 30 minutes, 35 minutes or so um, as we want run through this information. But first of all, I just want to let those of you who may not be very uh, aware uh, or have worked with us to date, um, health, Healthcare Informed, HCI, provide they support providers of health and social care to make intelligence-driven decisions to attain, manage and improve quality and safety of care and support within services. And we do this by um, streamlining a lot of uh, streamlining, supporting and transforming internal processes with that central focus on person-centered care and providing safe quality services. We're almost 20 years in business now and we've almost 30 staff. And to date, we've supported over 600 health and social care organizations to achieve best practice in their areas. So the very first question as we launch into it for every one of these webinar series, we ask ourselves, why are we here? What are we why, what are we talking about when we talk about governance and why is it of such importance uh, for health and social care providers? Well, what we can certainly say without any doubt is that the provision of any health and social care service poses many, many challenges. And that's just really due to the level of complexities that is involved. And it is one which is made even more complex when we uh, when it relates to the care and support of, of the elderly. And the, the, that level of complex care that is required when we talk about elderly care services, it has a significant um, number of risks that relate to the provision of the care. And for your, your own older members, I'm sure that you're aware in relation to the increasing healthcare needs that relate uh, to, to, to those members. You have various medical diagnoses that you need to be able to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. There may be additional demands for caring for older members with dementia, obviously we have those underlying vulnerabilities for, you know, for example, in relation to COVID-19 and the impacts that we have seen uh, and, and the demands that are made in relation to care services um, uh, in, in relation to, to those vulnerable issues. We have management of medications and, and the vast variations of medications that are there can cause an increased risk um, to the services being provided. And then obviously you're trying to provide individualized care in a standardized environment, which is, is can be extremely difficult to try and achieve. So that's the risks from an individual perspective, but there are also some significant organizational risks when we talk about um, the, the quality and safety of care being provided for older persons. One of the biggest risks um, can be the oversight of the services being provided. I mean, everybody is very involved in the day-to-day -day runnings um, 
of services, but trying to get that oversight of the services being provided. Are we providing safe quality of care? How would we know if we were or we were not? How can we identify issues that may be possibly coming down the line or may be occurring without a significant highlight? These are This is a significant organizational risk across the board. In many services, um, not just in, in, in the services relating to yourselves, but in many services, significant modules of the service may be outsourced to subcontractors um, or, or critical suppliers. And that can be a real challenge because although we may be outsourcing um, the day-to-day -day activities required, we still retain responsibility and a duty of care in relation to the quality and safety of that services being provided. So the, again, that monitoring of the activities that are being done is, is an additional risk to the service. And obviously, because of the range of vulnerabilities and underlying issues for older person services and, and, and your own older members, we're looking at increased training requirements for staff to ensure that they have the skills, the education and experience to be able to deal with the variations um, as they are required. So based on our individual risk for our older members and those significant organizational risk, it's mandatory that we have a really effective governance model to support the implementation of a safe quality service. So when we talk about this governance model, and, and it's just to underline the importance of it, and this is just a quote from HICWA, and irrespective of, of the regulatory body, and I know that that's slightly to the side, but it does underline the importance of it. Uh, the, the chief inspector in HICWA detail that the provider must have a robust governance arrangement in place to ensure safe quality service is being run. And service providers need to assure themselves of the quality and safety of the service through audit and through driving continuous improvement. So it's recognized, you know, it is the starting point for all health and social care services is that governance model so that it can provide the framework and structure for the organization to ensure the quality and safety of the care being provided. So just to give you an idea of before we talk about what good governance is, I just wanted to give you an insight and in what can happen when you have a very poor governance model. And I've taken this information information from a research paper that we completed recently um, within HCI, where we looked at common themes and characteristics um, that occurred within serious events that were identified both within the UK and within Ireland. So these were significant um, issues that arose that had direct impact on the quality and safety of care being provided. And in some case, some very significant impacts on the patients receiving that care. So we looked at those serious incidents and tried to identify what were this, the key themes that were continually reoccurring that were drivers or primary issues in relation to the problems that arose. And unsurprisingly, poor governance was identified as the primary root cause of significant issues uh, or significant failings by the services, at, which directly resulted in patient harm. Obviously, they were supported by failings in complaints, incident management, not a focus on person-centered care, issues in relation to risk management, issues in relation to that overall monitoring of data, 
and significant issues relating to supplier management. But governance came out number one. Where there was a weak governance model, it, it directly impacted on the care that was being provided to the service users or patients, whatever the case may be. So I just wanted to pick out three examples of some of these serious events. They're actually all based in the UK. They're not directly related to the, the type of care that you're providing. It's, it's more related to acute care services, but the results and the findings are certainly very relevant across the board for health and social care. So the first one I wanted to look at was just a recent review that was completed. It's called the Oakendean Review. It's related to maternity services within Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital National Trust. And it, it, it investigated in adverse outcomes experienced by patients, including the deaths of mothers and their babies. But when they looked specifically at the governance, irrespective of the type of service that was being provided, they found that the organisational structure was unclear, it lacked a clarity of those roles and responsibilities. So there was a general confusion on who was responsible for what and a lack of accountability for those roles and responsibilities throughout the service. They found the senior management team did not have oversight of any of the issues of concerns that were being raised within the service. So issues were known and identified, but they weren't being brought up to those senior management levels uh, and acted upon directly. The senior management team didn't provide any strategic direction or vision or any effective change or drive towards continuous improvement. It was literally just getting day-to-day -day activities without any projected vision or strategy to try and improve the quality of care. And they also did not ensure the development of accountable implementation plans. Yes, oh, that job needs to be done. Oh, we need to do something about that. But there was never really any effective implementation plans to respond to issues that were occurring within the service. They also found that there was suboptimal staffing levels and an unsafe inpatient to staffing ratio within the service. Again, the senior management team very aware of this, but they were not focused on the potential impact uh, that that was having in care outcomes. And they had repeated patterns of poor care. So they weren't keeping up to date with evidence-based best practice that was emerging within the service. They were doing things because that was the way they have been done for the last 20 years, rather than advancing their care development processes and ensuring that they were reflective in the outcomes um, within the service. You may well have heard of the Mid-Staff, uh, Staffordshire NHS Trust Public Inquiry. This was where 400 people died as a result of receiving poor care over a 50-month period, a really horrific um, investigation. But again, when they looked at the governance model, they again found the there was an overall strategic vision or direction was lacking at that senior management level. Interestingly, there was insufficient teams or committees in place to ensure the quality and safety of care being provided. So they didn't have the multidisciplinary groups um, pulled together with a clear directive on what the roles and responsibilities of those teams were. So you know, in many of those teams, they had teams and committees in place, but their focus might have been on cost cutting or in different areas. It certainly wasn't um, about monitoring and trending the information that was coming out of the services like incidents, like complaints um, and trending that and seeing was there a deterioration in the services? Was there failings within it and acting directly upon that? So there were significant issues in that regard. They found that although audits were being completed, when they were done, there was no 
robust mechanism in place to ensure that changes were ever implemented. So you had audits taking place that had the same findings year on year and nothing ever done about it. So the people within that senior management team that should have been taking up that information and acting and driving out improvements were actually just sitting on it. And the same thing, it just went round and round and round and, and, and no change to the service. And also patient feedback was never sought. So they never try to get any information from the end users of the service to try and say, well, what was your experience like in relation to the service? What would you like to see in the service? What, you know, what information or feedback could we take from your experience to try and improve the quality of care provided? Just very briefly, the last one in relation to the Liverpool independent review, this is where the trust, the senior management team put the safety of patients at risk due to a singular focused on cost improvement. And again, when we looked at the governance elements of it, they found that the people in those governance roles were really very inexperienced at the management of a healthcare service. So they were just looking at financial arrangements. They didn't have the experience or the exposure or the expertise to actually look for real indicators that would show whether the quality and safety of the care was good enough. They found that there was real lack of leadership at senior and middle management levels. There was nobody giving clear guidance on you know, what we should be trying to strive to achieve within the service. And that there was real discouragement of reporting incidents and they actually reduced severity ratings of incidents to try and minimize the impact. So they just that, that you know, we've all heard now the, the open disclosure and that that's certainly to the forefront currently. But so there was a real lack of open disclosure within the service where they just didn't want to hear about the problems. They didn't see them as a learning. They didn't want to, to drive any improvements from issues that were arising. Um, and again, we had issues in relation to, to there was no strategic plan for audit and there was no dedicated staff member with oversight for the audit program. So again, going back to those organizational roles and responsibilities, there was no clear division um, and accountability in relation to these mandatory roles um, that would, would drive improvement within the service. So I suppose we've looked at what can happen when we have really, really poor governance structures in place. But what I suppose we want to look at now is what does a good governance model look like? Um, and, and, and what are the, the kind of indicators um, that would illustrate a service that has a good governance framework in place? So I've just pulled out a couple of points here. I mean, this is really just very bullet point uh, observations. But first of all, the governance arrangements have to be appropriate for the size, scope and complexity for the service provider. And many uh, of the clients that we work with say, well, it's a very small service. We only have a very uh, nominal number of, of, of service users or older persons within the services. Unfortunately, whether you have two or you have 102 um, individuals utilizing the service, there is a basic mandatory requirement for the governance model that has to be in place. There has to be a, a robust formalized structure in place to be able to support it. We'll look at some of those structures as we work our way through it. But certainly where you have a more complex layout, where you may have a number of sites, a number of, of facilities that are under the one governance framework, then it becomes a little bit more complex. And we need to ensure that those arrangements we have in place are sufficiently comprehensive and robust to be able to draw in information from all of those services so that we can provide a really robust governance model in that regard. It is 
absolutely critical that we have clearly defined lines of authority and accountability. So we need to know who individually is accountable and responsible that has an overall uh, responsibility in relation to roles and responsibilities, not just in relation to you know, finance or whatever. It's in relation to quality and safety, about trending data, information, taking information out, driving activities. So those lines of authority need to be very clear. And something that has certainly came out in relation uh, from recently with COVID was about role delegation, where we've seen with COVID overnight where one individual who may have been carrying a huge amount of roles and responsibilities is taken out of a service. And then what happens if, you know, all the balls start to fall? So it's really important that we have role delegation, that we know that if if Una Gilvary is not going to be at work tomorrow, who's going to be able to manage those roles and responsibilities that UNA carries at the, uh, uh, at the moment. It's important within our governance model that the people who have the, uh, the responsibility for governance are appropriately trained and they have the required experience. We think to that mid-staff where everybody was very or in Liverpool, where everybody was very uh, finance focused, they didn't have the experience to ask the questions um, that they should have been asking about the quality and safety of care that was being provided and looking at the indicators that would reflect an issue in that regard. It's important within a good governance model that we have management roles that are visible at all levels. So everybody knows who the management team is and the members both the staff and your older members know how to make contact with them, know who they are, know how to communicate and that they're open and visible within the service, um, which, which is really important. And certainly if there's an issue where there's a problem that they know how to escalate it um, and that there's a clear escalation process uh, within that management structure. Obviously, within good governance, we need adequate resources, not always very easy to achieve, but we need to ensure that that's a focus of the governance model to ensure that the quality and safety of the care provided is sufficient, will be sufficiently supported by the resources in place. We talk about risk management models. I know within a lot of services, it, it really can become um, a sticking point in relation to risk management model and what does it mean and what does it require from services. But certainly what we're looking to try and drive towards in, gov in good governance is about looking at risks, not just reactively, where we react to a problem that arises like an incident, but that we're proactively working in relation to risk assessment. We're trying to consider uh, before any uh, potential issues might arise, what are the adequate or required controls that we should have in place to try and minimize any potential harm to our older members. This is a big one again, and, and has caused significant problems for other services about appropriate controls being in place for critical subcontractors, as I said, um, within uh, other health and social care models. A lot of outsourcing goes on, um, and it really is important that we have uh, defined uh, detailed contracts in place that define the roles and responsibilities, but also that that monitoring arrangement is in place so that there's a continual um, assessment of the of of the the care that are that's being provided or whatever the outsource model is uh, is is being done to the to meet the requirements by the subcontractors. 
Good governance certainly breeds an open culture of communication, and that's what we're trying to facilitate all the time within a governance model, that open door policy, um, that there's open communication, and that any communication is taken as a form of learning rather than something um, that can be used uh, as, a, as a stick. I mean, we really want to try and embrace those open communications and take them as learnings. One of the key features that has, has evolved in good governance models throughout, again, the health and social care services is about trying to get the members, the service users, the patients involved in the actual design and improvement of the service, that they're just not receivers of uh, the service, but they're actually involved in the design and development because obviously they're the people um, that are living it. They're, you know, that's their the, day to day and that we want to try and engage them and get their input and try and in, uh, incorporate that in the design of our services. And obviously the final one here in, in relation to evidence-based best practice, as I said, we don't want to be stuck in a quagmire of, well, that's we do it this way because that's the way it's been done for the last 20 years. We have to ensure that best practice is incorporated and ensuring that that is obviously person-centered at all times. When we talk about measuring um, and we'll talk about key performance indicators. So what is that about? That's about trying to take particular measures within our, uh, that are arising from the services that we're providing and looking at them, trending them, monitoring them, analyzing them, and ensuring that they're reported at management so that so that they can drive continuous improvement. So that might be the number of incidents that are arising. It might be a clinical indicator, say in relation to um, um, UTIs or, or you know, in, in relation to that. It might be in relation to complaints. It, it may be in relation to staff turnover. All of those things are indicators that can assist us in trying to monitor the quality and safety of care that's being provided. It's really important within good governance, and this is a you know this is the fulcrum of it, is that we need a robust continuous assessment process. So the likes of an effective audit program that's actually going to drive real quality improvement strategy. So what's important for 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 those embarking on it uh, uh, from from the early stages is trying to benchmark the current status, identify where we want to try and get to, and then work towards a plan of improvements to try and achieve that quality of care. I've mentioned this previously, that culture of learning, it's so, so central to good governance about learning from incidents, learning from feedback, learning from external issues and, and reports that come out from external services that may have nothing uh, directly related to do with our service, but drawing in the learning from um, external sources to try and improve the quality and safety of care that's that's being provided within our services. So. They're all lovely things to have in, in, in a governance model, and they certainly would be indicators of very robust uh, models. But I suppose the question is, do you know how good your governance is? Um, and the question is, I suppose, is the governance framework in place? Is it sufficiently robust to ensure the quality and safety of the care being provided to your older members? In many cases, we have a lot of checks and balances and a lot of the health and social care services that we work with. But the question is, I suppose, are these checks and balances just really tick boxes exercise or do they really drive change? Do they really drive improvement within the service? Now, we know that this isn't about compliance. That's that's another day's work. That's That's something else. What it is about is about providing assurances that the 
older members are receiving the care and support that they need and also identifying those high risk areas, being proactive to identify the high risk areas within the service and then responding appropriately to those risks once they have been identified. So that's really what we're trying to do in relation to it. So if we talk about a comprehensive review of the quality and safety of care and, and, and particularly in relation to governance, I suppose we're focusing on today, but from the broader spectrum, uh, we utilize something called the gap analysis approach. And we've we've utilized this throughout um, all of our work in health and social care uh, services as a model to complete a benchmarking and drive continuous improvement. So what is this gap analysis approach? Well, it's about objectively assessing performance. And that's a key word, objectivity. And it can be very difficult to be objective if you're working within the service, obviously. And I mean, I, I understand that completely, but it's about trying to get us take a step back and objectively assessing the performance to determine whether the requirements, and in this case, I'm talking about best practice, whether it's being met, and if it's not being met, what are the risks to the service? And then what steps can we take to meet them? So that's what it's all about in, in, in a nutshell. So a gap analysis really gives us a starting point for an action plan to achieve uh, that, that compliance with best practice and service improvement. And it'll also help to identify maybe some of the resources and training requirements that we need to try and incorporate to ensure uh, we, we are where we need to be. Now, gap analysis is different than audit. Audit, I would always say, is like a snapshot in time. It's a verification of a process. So you're only verifying something that's already there. In a gap analysis, you're seeing, well, we're looking at a lot more uh, detail and we're looking to see if there's anything that has been left out um, and, and, and maybe needs more or, or further development. So it, it's a much more expansive process really than individual audit. So we've six, three, six key stages to complete gap analysis. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly, but it'll just give you an idea for the approach to gap analysis um, uh, and, and how it can be implemented within a service. So we're going to establish a target. We're going to complete some planning. We're going to analyze our current processes. Then we're going to report those findings and we're going to risk rate them. And then we're going to look at an action plan and then we're going to look at each of these individual stages. So what is our target? What are we trying to achieve? Well, what we're trying to achieve is um, ensuring that we have best practice in place within our services. Now, HCI have actually developed a gap analysis tool which incorporates all of the relevant best practice as they relate to missionaries and, and, and religious services. So how did we do that? Well, it is a process of selection looking at um, again, always utilizing best practice documentation, but the likes of the national standards for safer, better healthcare, the likes of the draft regs for home care, the likes of the national standards for residential care for older people. But it is specifically molded uh, to be reflective of the um, the 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 health the care being provided by missionaries and and religious orders. So I'll look I'll show you that tool in a little while, but it's important when we look at that tool that we need to cover all aspects of the service. Now we're focusing today just we're talking about governance and that's central to it. But when a gap analysis is completed, it has to incorporate all elements of the service. So you have your governance is your driving force, but then we have to look at staffing and our training models. We need to look at our medication management, however detailed that that might be. We look at our care planning, our personal planning and individualized care that we're providing, that person-centered care and how we involve them 
uh, Valvar are older members in the care being provided. We look at privacy and dignity and ensuring those requirements are implemented. We're looking at infection prevention control. I'm sure none of you need uh, need any lectures in relation to that, but it's very important that we keep up to date on, on developments in that regard and safeguarding our, our vulnerable adults is also, also central to it. So all aspects of the service um, will be reviewed or should be reviewed as part of a gap analysis, but as I said, we're just going to really be looking at the governance model uh, as we walk through it today. So then we embark on what we call the planning process. And what is that about? Well, that's about taking each of those little modules and dividing them up. And generally, when we're talking about doing a gap analysis, um, it's completed over a documentation review and then a number of days on site where we're actually interacting with, um, with staff and with older persons, if that's possible, to try and get a real feel for the service that being provided. So the planning element is all about what we're going to look at, how we're going to group them together, who do we need to talk to, and who's best placed to facilitate that activity. So we look, um, it's, it's, and we also look at the timelines that are, that are involved in that and how long we're going to look at it. So depending on the service and, and the key areas of focus, we divide up a planning agenda on that basis. As I said, the gap analysis tool. So this is what we're going to utilize when this gap analysis process launched. Now it's a very simple tool. Um, we just utilize an Excel format in this regard, but you can see from the tabs underneath, we, we break it up into little bite-sized chunks. And then we take the best practice requirements as they relate to each of those areas. So in governance and management, there's a number of best practices. So again, they're coming from Safer Better Healthcare or the draft regs for home care, whatever is applicable to the missionary and religious services. So this is going to be our model where we have our requirement. We're going to look at our findings, our risk ratings, our QIPs. That's what we call our quality improvement projects. They're going to be the actions that we're going to work on as we move forward. We'll look at filling one of these out as we move along. So how then do we analyze the current process? So we've planned it. We've got a tool. We're ready to go. Now we want to embark on analyzing the current process. So if we just look at the governance, if we were, that would be slightly different if we were looking say at care planning or, or safeguarding, but if we just look at governance, what's the sort of work that we would embark on? Well, gap analysis, it's important that we utilize what we call a triangulation model, where we look at the documentation that's available to support the processes. We try it, we interview or engage on one-to-one -one communications with both staff and, 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 and service users or old persons, and then observe the processes in place. So it's a reflective of that authoritative uh, monitoring approach that most of the regulatory bodies will utilize, but it's important that we can reflect that to the best of our abilities. So if we look, first of all, from a documentation perspective, so if it was a case that I was completing a gap analysis in relation to governance and I was looking at particular documents, what type of documentation would I be looking for? Well, obviously, I'd be looking for all of the policies and procedures that are currently available that relate to the governance model. So in uh, Outside of that, if we're from the direct policies and procedures and processes that are laid out, there's a huge amount of records that we would probably be looking for. Any plans, strategic or operational, org charts, team charts, 
terms of reference for committees that might be in place. Supplier contracts will be really important. So we'll be looking at the outputs from the governance framework to see how they manage their suppliers uh, in that regard. From a monitoring perspective, we'd be looking for audit reports, any key process indicators that might be in place, incident management records, but also trending or analysis of any uh, information arising from incidents or complaints. If there's any risk register information there, any improvement projects that were embarked on and any external reporting information. So any information that might be from health and safety authority, whatever the case may be. We'd also draw in some HR records, so staff files, job descriptions would be central, training plans, induction training plans, um, staff rotas, whatever the case may be. So when we look at the documentation and we do this as the first element of our gap analysis, it's really about trying to get an idea of what processes are supposed to be in place, are supposed to be implemented, and looking at the outputs that should be arising from those and seeing how the governance model implements in that regard. If we then move on to the interview process, so this is really about engaging in one-to-one -one communications uh, with individuals. So this is about communication with management, with staff and with older members, if that's possible. And we ask to try and look for evidence of the governance framework being in place and working. So are staff clear on the reporting arrangements, particularly if there are outsourcing arrangements? Do they know who's responsible for what and who to go to when needs be? Do the older members know who the individual in charge is and how to contact them if they're required? Um, they're, we're looking to see if there's clear accountability and responsibility arrangements in place, not just nine to five, but during the outside core working hours, uh, seven days a week. Do the staff know how to escalate issues? Do the staff know or feel that there is open communication with management or is there evidence of that? And is there generally an environment of learning? Are there meetings taking place where there's open communication in relation to incidents that may have arose or learnings that can be identified in that regard? So that's some of the, the evidence. And also, obviously, when we're, we're talking with management, we're looking at their, their um uh, reflections in relation to how effective the teams and committees are in place um, and their engagement with the other senior manage managers within the services. From an observation perspective, then, if we look at governance, when uh, it's, it's being observed, we're looking for how managers are leading, if they're engaging with other management and staff, are there any meetings ongoing within the service, and who is on site on a day-to-day -day basis um, in that regard. So overall, from an observation and interview perspective, we're looking for evidence of implementation. So if your policies and procedures are there, is there evidence of implementation? Are our policies and procedures lacking? Are there significant gaps within those policies and procedures uh, that would be required under best practice? We want to try and observe those processes being implemented, but always being considerate of privacy, dignity and consent in every case. It's important that we try and speak to all as many staff members as we can. It's not just about talking to management. We expect management to know how it works, but it's important that the, the, the frontline staff are comfortable and confident with the process that are required. And, you know, when we talk to staff, we always ask them about, do they know what to do when things go wrong? It's all lovely when everything goes right and everybody generally knows the pattern. But when something goes wrong, do they know how to escalate the process? Do they know the point of contact that is required in every case?
It's really important when we do a gap analysis, you have to look beyond the paperwork. You know, in many cases, you know, in my own experience, when I'd be experiencing external auditors, many of them are, are, are where a gap analysis would be complete and they would just huddle themselves in an office and it just review paper. Um, it's really about getting out and get out on the floor, do those interviews and observe. Um, it's it's really important uh, and try and get feedback from, from the older members if at all possible. As I said, objectivity in this stage is critical and it is very difficult to do, particularly in relation to smaller services. Uh, it's very difficult to be objective because there's a whole history that comes with a lot of the processes that are in place, but it is critical if the process is to be effective that we have that objectivity and the clear understanding and experience and knowledge of what is best practice uh, in the areas that we're reviewing. So based on that, once we have all of our documentation review, our observation done, our interviews done, we then detail our findings. So that's about comparing current evidence of compliance with the expected evidence compliance and trying to identify the gaps. So we really go back at this stage to our tool. So in this example, I've just picked one best practice requirements. And that was about the service had to have a uh, clearly defined accessible governance arrangement and structure that set out the lines of accountability, authority, stipulate individual accountability and specify roles and responsibilities. So that's what we expect is to achieve when we so on this example, we've looked at um, and with our findings identified um, is all very fictitious, obviously, informal governance framework in place only, which did not provide sufficient detail regarding roles, responsibilities and accountabilities of individuals or of teams. There was no organisational chart, no committee terms of reference and no job descriptions available. During interviews, staff detailed they were unclear on reporting arrangements. None of the service users were spoken to as part, uh, none of the service users that were spoken to as part of the a gap analysis were clear on who was the individual in charge. So obviously very, very, very bad issues here. We have some significant problems in this regard. So we've identified the findings. Our next stage is then to risk rate those findings. Now, risk rating is important to do for gap analysis, and we want to try and make it as reflective as possible um, of, of a good of a best practice rating model. So, again, this is based on general regulatory approach to a risk rating. So red risk uh, is identified where you have a significant risk to the safety, health and welfare of the older member and requires considerable action to address it. So. This is a real red flag and we need immediate work to address it or there could be an immediate risk to um, the older persons involved. So that's that's a significant one. If we have orange risk, this again requires considerable action, but it doesn't pose a direct risk to the, the safety, health and welfare of the members. OK, so we're down a level. Then we have yellow where again, you don't have a risk to the, the, the older members, but it does require some action to address it. And in many cases, we can find if yellow risks get ignored, they can start to climb the table into oranges and red. So that's important to note. And then if we're compliant, then we can allocate it a nice green color to say that it's reflective of best practice. So in this case, obviously, with the significant gaps that are there in relation to governance, and we've seen, uh, as we've talked about earlier in, in our research paper, the direct impact that, it, that, that a poor governance framework can have um, in relation to service provided. So we've allocated a red risk rating in this case. And from this, then, we have identified, we've said that we've identified the benchmark and we want to try and develop an action plan.
So when we develop this action plan, it needs to be a comprehensive step-by-step -step process. And it's really important that we identify individuals and not teams to these actions. There has to be one individual responsible for the implementation of the actions. It's important that we set a timeline and it's really important that these actions are what we've called quality improvement projects are reviewed on an ongoing and scheduled basis and that that is documented and recorded within the minutes of that meeting. So we really need to stay on top of these actions as they are identified or else what was the point in doing the process in the first place? So examples of the types of QIPs that would, could be identified in relation to the finding we had here. Well, we want to develop an organization chart detailing the governance framework and reporting relationships within the service. We want to develop job descriptions for each role and ensuring that all required responsibilities in relation to quality and safety of services is detailed. We want to develop a committee's listing with um, full terms of reference, agenda and minute templates for all. And we want to develop a communication strategy for stra staff and service users to ensure the effective communication of governance arrangements. So a lot of information there. I've said A and other can be Unigilvari, whatever the case may be, set a timeline and identify the status in that regard. And this template is going to be, these QIPs are going to have to be then monitored on an ongoing basis within those meetings. So we've gone through each of the six steps. We've identified our target of best practice. We've uh, completed our planning for the gap analysis. We've analyzed the current processes through documentation review, interview and observation. We've detailed the findings and we've risk rated them. And then we've developed our comprehensive step-by-step -step action plan to launch us into good governance. A couple of other things that can be utilized in relation to uh, governance and ensuring um, an effective good governance. One is the quality and safety culture survey. Um, this is something that we implement in many services to try and identify what is the underlying culture in relation to um, uh, patient safety and quality within the service. Um, we're licensed to utilize this model. It was developed by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, but it assists to, again, identifying that baseline and then identifies key areas that require quality improvement initiatives. And again, it's it's a real demonstration to staff that we're listening, we're open to positive uh, to, to feedback and trying to incorporate that within the culture of the service. Ongoing quality of care audits are critical. Once the gap analysis has been completed and then we're implementing those QIPs, it's really important that we have an ongoing process of ensuring continual development of our services. So we want those audits to monitor the implementation and the effectiveness of those QIPs, whether they were effective uh, in, in addressing the, the requirements. We want to monitor best practice. It changes all the time. Uh, I work in a best practice department. We're never out of work. There's this continual developments all of the time within um, older person services. And we want to obviously promote continuous improvement through those audits. Again, objectivity is the key. We really need to be objective to those process. And we will need to make sure that there's a comprehensive approach that each and every key area of focus is identified, addressed and audited within the service. So that's brought me really to our last slide. And I suppose just to let you know how we can help you now that you'll have the chance to consider all of that information, just to let you know, before I just finish up, this um, webinar will be made available on all of our social media websites. And I think Rosemary will also email the link 
to all the attendees today. Should you have other members um, within your services that you think it would be of interest to? But in relation to what HCI can do for you, um, we have a QualCare, a quality of care assurance model. It's a program that will independently evaluate the care and services that uh, are being provided to older members. Um, we could, and from that, we do that comprehensive review, as we talked about, as regards the gap analysis, looking at evidence-based best practice and that specific HCI tool that we've developed. And the output of that is a comprehensive assurance of care report, which will detail good practice. It's important to identify that, but also those areas of risk and a roadmap for improvement as you move forward. Supporting that, there's an ongoing program of support. It's a process improvement, and that's primarily implemented through an auditing process. So with all of that in mind, um, and there's a lot of information, I'm really thankful that you gave me your time this morning. If you have any specific queries or questions, please feel free to email them through to the email address here, info at hci.care. Like I said, thanks very much for your time this morning. And hopefully we will see you again on another one of the HCI webinar series.